Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Ashley Otto, Director of the Academy for Justice at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measured Justice. This episode on the Academy for Justice forthcoming Miscarriage of Justice Symposium, spearheaded by the Academy's very own Professor Belina Beatty, will be introduced by my co-host today, Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice and the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at Arizona State University. Thank you, Ashley. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Today on this podcast episode, we'll be discussing a new action guide that will be unveiled at our symposium that Ashley just mentioned, entitled Miscarriages of Justice, Litigating Beyond Factual Innocence. We're fortunate to be joined by two of its authors, Karen Newberth, founder and principal of Newworth Law, and Karen Thompson, civil rights attorney with ACLU New Jersey. Their bios can be found on our website, www.academyforjustice.org. Thank you all for joining us today. Before we begin, uh, ASU law professor and my and our deputy uh, director, Valina Beatty, um, who is the third author on this guide, but couldn't make it here today, has provided us a clip with a brief introduction to the guide and what we'll be discussing today. This guide, Miscarriages of Justice, Litigating Beyond Factual Innocence, is intended to provide post-conviction litigators, conviction integrity prosecutors, public defenders, judges, and wrongfully convicted individuals themselves with innovative and creative approaches to addressing miscarriages of justice. We created this guide in response to three related trends. First, the U.S. Supreme Court decisions limiting federal habeas corpus relief, which means an increased focus on finding that relief instead in state courts. Second, conviction integrity units in prosecutors' offices that have increasingly reviewed and vacated convictions based on a miscarriage of justice rather than solely based on proof of innocence. And third, post-conviction litigators who have successfully been bringing claims for relief based on a holistic review of all the evidence. This is a broader framing for reviewing courts. Additionally, we've seen in recent years, legislatures passing statutes for convictions to be reviewed based on whether there was racial bias, uh, the age of the convicted person at the time of the offense or sentence. Uh, and based on excessive sentences. So this guide collects and analyzes cases from across the country to highlight these varied ways that stakeholders are finding relief for miscarriages of justice. This guide is also about coalition building 
And the working group for the guide and external reviewers were a microcosm of that coalition building. Uh, the guide was created through a collaborative working group of innocence litigators, conviction integrity unit directors, defense attorneys, civil rights attorneys, and law professors. We hope it can be a tool for greater coalition building and spreading the insights from miscarriage of justice cases more widely. Ms. Newworth, as you know, the, the National Registry of Exonerations 2020 annual report found that official misconduct contributed to more than half of all documented exonerations and overwhelmingly those of Black and Latino defendants, uh, a, a disconcerting statistic. What exactly is official misconduct, and, uh, in particular in that kind of context, and how might it affect the criminally accused today? So official misconduct, um, broadly speaking, can be any kind of improper behavior by um, official actors, police officers, prosecutors, but also can be um, forensic analysts, folks who conduct um, post-mortem examinations and the like. And so official misconduct can range from anything uh, like coercing witnesses or fabricating or destroying evidence to hiding Brady material, exculpatory or favorable information, or failing to disclose other um, discovery, tampering with witnesses. The National Registry noticed a number of particular patterns of official misconduct, including concealing exculpatory evidence, police misconduct in the forms of witness tampering, in, um, interrogation misconduct, fabrication of evidence, um, as well as concealing exculpatory evidence and committing perjury at trial. The report of the NRE also um, underscored the way in which official misconduct contributes to the racial disparity among those who've been wrong, wrongfully convicted. And I would argue, and I think our report sets forth powerfully, how official misconduct probably also contributes to the undercounting of the wrongfully convicted who are all also Black, Latinx, or otherwise um, over-policed people, and, and women, including women. And that is because much of the police misconduct occurs during street level operations involving um, lower level, but nevertheless serious crimes, for example, drug crimes and uh, sex crimes and weapons crimes, where police are sort of able to freely commit misconduct against folks who are marginalized. And those folks often don't have any incentive or time or resources to bring their wrongful convictions to the attention of um, innocence organizations who likewise don't generally have the resources to consider those cases. People who are wrongly convicted in those circumstances generally serve fewer years in prison um, and also often take pleas. And so the road to exoneration is often uh, very limited. Wow. And, and, and Ms. Thompson, turning to you, talking, I want to talk a little bit more about this. Ms. Neuwirth talked about the official uh, misconduct, and I want to get your take. How pervasive is official misconduct? And, and in, in your view, what, what effect does this have on the legitimacy of the criminal justice system in the eyes of the public? Well, sadly, it's very, very pervasive. The National Registry of Exonerations, as of January of this year, 
has noted that official misconduct was a component of nearly uh, 60% of the exonerations that have happened to date. So that just goes to show that where there is a wrongful conviction, there is um, almost always an instance of official misconduct. And we have to always keep in mind that wrongful convictions are this complete layer of, of, of violations and misconduct. So uh, there's one layer of official misconduct, but layered upon that could be other things like uh, forensic science that is incorrect or wrong, that there is tampering with witnesses, that there is perjury, that there are false confessions. So um, no, no single thing is usually a driver. It's um, sadly kind of a, a tiramisu of bad conduct as it were. And I don't mean to make light of it, but the fact is, I think one of the beautiful things about the innocence movement and what it's done in its first 40 decades is to bring the levels of uh, misconduct and bad behavior to the public, to those who operate within the system as judges, as attorneys, um, and as, as defendants, as to how all of those layers operate to impede justice. I think that one of the things that we've seen in these last 40 years is how deep these questions are, how how much it's warped, how the system can work as an efficient, justice-minded scaffolding. And the promises of the Constitution, the promises of what we think um, should be equity are deeply undermined by all of these factors and what we hope are guide is going to do um, is teach other practitioners to teach uh, defendants, to teach those who are incarcerated, as well as the keepers of justice, uh, judges, uh, prosecutors, district attorneys, that we can all start to look at how that warp um, can be undone and that we can move more uh, directly into a future that might actually be justice-centered. I'd like to pick up on something that Karen just said, um, or was just describing the corrosive effect of official misconduct on the system. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of jury selection, and there were two very interesting, at least two very interesting things that happened on this point. One was that we had a juror who was an, um, a woman, a white woman in her 60s, who's a resident here of, the, of a um, rural town. And she asked to come speak privately with counsel and the judges about why she felt she couldn't be, um, couldn't serve on the jury. And she described knowing the facts of this case, believing that there had been some police corruption um, in the case, which is part of our claim that the police in this case had fabricated evidence and coerced witnesses. But what she described um, was really powerful, which was that it was the solidarity of the police in this small rural town. And having seen them at different events, parades, or when someone passed away, and her feeling that if she served on the jury and found our client not guilty, that she would be placing herself at risk of this police department. And she said, and I'm this is pretty close to a, a quote, if anything happens to me, I need to rely on them. And I don't feel like I can serve on this jury out of fear of these um, police officers. So we can see the, you know, the ripple effects of police corruption is not just in, um, on, the, on the individuals who suffer directly, on the communities in which people who have no 
law enforcement contact whatsoever live. And it just completely undermines not only faith in law enforcement, but also faith and participation in the criminal justice system. And I think we also need to really look at the fact that the criminal justice system is a very specific ecosystem and it depends uh, part on part on part to function. So if you have a corrupted uh, police officers and we, we always hear, you know, it's just a bad apple. Well, you know, the full quote is that the bad apple spoils the barrel, right? And so if that corruption or if the misconduct or if the violation goes unspoken, what happens next is that corrupted person, that officer might go testify. And that prosecutor is dependent on that testimony to get the conviction, which means that there's going to be a lot more leeway for the bad behavior. The judge might have been a former prosecutor, so understands where the prosecutor's coming from, which means that what we've got is uh, this inter interdependency on um, bad behavior that then influences how everything else falls out um, within that case and then within the system. So we are really, what we are trying to wrangle with in, in this conversation that we're having in this guide is ways in which we can start to permeate some of these um, really kind of ossified ways of being and, and ways that we think are very, very doable. And when I say that, again, I'm saying this from an innocence movement that's come very far in 40 years. It's really reshaped how we think about uh, advocacy, how we think about the failures and the weaknesses in the system and ways in which we can make those um, failures become actual checks on uh, again, on justice and equity in the system. So our hope is that in the next 40 years of, of uh, the innocence movement, we can start coming in earlier. We can start snipping off um, these places where we see the misconduct happening and that we can bring a different kind of parity um, by, by making this community a community and not sort of an isolated atomized group of innocence projects um, doing their work in isolation. That's great, Ms. Thompson. Let me let me turn it to, to Ms. Newworth on, on a similar note, but probably the kind of an opposite side uh, perspective. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about something that has a, a term that has been used a lot recently and maybe known in academe, but uh, and and amongst amongst practitioners like yourselves at the high levels, but may not be fully understood by the public? And that's the notion of this conviction integrity unit. What what do these things do, and and what are they, uh, and do they work? Well, what they uh, conviction integrity units are generally um, units or divisions within a prosecutor's office that um, has some mission involving the review of past convictions. And what they are and how well they work really depends on um, their mission, their composition, the office's commitment um, to the work. Um, I think in at best, they are an important component of um, the work that Karen Thompson was just describing and that um, we're, we're advocating for in, in the guide and they can be important partners in innocence work. But I think they're, um, again, it, it varies widely, the quality, the, the work they do, the cases they take on and, their, and the effect that they have downstream, meaning, you know, whether they take the lessons learned from reviewing past cases and um, work to expand upon the individual case 
lessons, to change culture, to review um, cases on a broader scale. Um, for example, you know, we a former colleague of Karen and mine from the Innocence Project now runs a conviction integrity unit in in the county of Queens um, in New York City. And um, there was an exoneration in that case that resulted in part from a very senior prosecutor's um, illegal use of race-based strikes in, in jury composition. And it, it was reported in the news that following that exoneration, all of that prosecutor's cases were being reviewed, as well as the use of peremptories by the office during that period of time. And I think that's the kind of, you know, broader scale work that these units should be doing. And, and so taking that and building off that a bit and looking kind of big picture, um, the guide notes that building a, a coalition of prosecutors, public defenders, innocence organizations um, is both needed, but has also led to a number of dismissals. Um, how have these coalitions been developed, Ms. Thompson, and, and, and have they gotten off the ground? And, and second, can you give us an example or some examples of, of these really working in practice? I'm going to leave a second part of that to Karen, because I think that she's had um, very recently um, a, a very clear example of that, and I, I think it would be helpful. But with regard to the, the first part in coalition building, I think that we have seen it, and some of it is out of necessity. We've just seen some coming together because literally it's about money and funding, right? So if you have a public defender's office, which already has a almost un, unfeasible amount of cases, a, a, a number that it just makes it possible to get to all the cases in a way that's thorough and deep, then partnerships become something that's a little bit uh, more easy to envision, just because it's just about putting a hand on the shoulder of another organization. But we've also seen these partnerships within the Innocence Movement. So you have the National Innocence Project, and then you see the Innocence Network, which is a network of organizations across the globe that have come together to do the work. But we also have seen within public defenders offices across the country, um, innocence, I wouldn't say orgs, but but kind of wings of po prosecutors, uh, uh, sorry, of public defenders offices that have understood the, the key need for public defenders to be aware of and doing this work as well. And the exculpatory potential of DNA testing, of recognizing the abuses in witness testimony, um, in, in how we interview juveniles, all of these sorts of things. We, we do see a little bit of a trickle down in the sense that we have these innocence cases. And then as public defenders become aware even as prosecutors become aware, as we see these cases being overturned, then it, it does kind of raise the consciousness, which also creates the community. Uh, I think what we are advocating for, though, in the guide is to make that creation of community a little bit more intentional, um, to in ensure that the jurisprudence that is coming out of innocence movements becomes something that is of use across the country um, and implemented across the country so that, again, we don't get to this atomized advocacy, but a coherent, thoughtful, connected, uh, new ecosystem of legal work um, from both the impacted people, from defendants, from those who are imprisoned, to those who represent them. Absolutely. And, and um, Ms. Newworth, if you wouldn't mind telling us about the recent success. 
Sure. Prior to the prior to the pandemic, I was interested in trying to see whether or not it would be possible to exonerate people in mass whose convictions had been obtained by police officers who had had findings adverse findings against them, for example, had been convicted of crimes in the course of their duties, had had um, adverse findings of credibility by judges, which is rare, or had otherwise been known in the community and among public defenders as being corrupt, had numerous, you know, an extreme high number of civil rights claims against them, et cetera. So the idea was, can we start by looking at known corrupt actors and then tracing from there to the people they had been arrested and essentially arguing that those convictions should be invalidated due to what we had learned about their misconduct. And so it was very arduous work, largely because record keeping in the criminal justice system, even in um, the NYPD, which is the most well-funded and militarized and digitized, computerized um, law enforcement agency in the country is is abysmal. There are no records. Um, so you know you, you you know although the NYPD keeps and requires law enforcement to keep records of all of their arrests and tracking folks who are arrested and et cetera, there's no easy way that you can find out who are all the people that ex officer arrested. And this is again going to what Karen was saying about resources and sharing resources. But that information, who who was arrested by certain police officers, lives with the police, lives with the public defenders, and then if the people are indicted or not, potentially, may live with prosecutors. And so, you know, figuring out coalitions can also be important just for information collection purposes. So around that time in 2021... One of the officers that that I had identified who had been arrested by the Manhattan District Attorney um, for fabricating drug crimes. Um, He claimed to have witnessed drug sales and purchases, but there were video cameras that showed that those never occurred. He he was um, indicted by the Manhattan DA. And prior to his trial, the Brooklyn district attorney took the step of dismissing or vacating many of his convictions. And this happened to be at a very interesting political moment where there was a race for the Manhattan district attorney. And I, I it was co- coincidentally coincided with this work that I was doing, trying to develop, identify the officers and f- trying to find out who had been arrested. And so I reached out to friends and colleagues in the public defender's office, the appellate defenders, um, and other innocence organizations in the city. And we put together uh, very quickly, you know, this was an opportunity, a letter demanding that the other district attorneys in the city do what the Brooklyn DA had done, and also asking for, to be able to participate in the review of these cases and to have the opportunity to review cases that the district attorney didn't, the the various district attorneys didn't um, agree to dismiss. And in short, all of the other district attorneys, except for Staten Island, agreed that they would review these cases. And then over the next year, the different offices began dismissing cases. And I think we're probably approaching um, a thousand cases that have been dismissed now. And so that was, you know, um, a building of coalitions. The prosecutors have generally 
worked independently, done their own reviews. They have not, they didn't accept the request or demand that they work with the lawyers or allow lawyers to review cases that they weren't dismissing. But um, it, it's been a very good result and obviously a very good and important result for all of the clients whose cases were dismissed, although not all of them may even know that this occurred because many people were not, were not, their whereabouts were unknown. They may have been deported, included, including as a result of these convictions. Um, but the hope is that this will also begin um, to uh, encourage prosecutors to have protocol in place for when a police officer is um, convicted of a crime in the course of their duties or otherwise has these adverse findings. It's kind of remarkable to think that, you know, for years and all across this country, and we know that police officers do commit crimes and do get convicted of crimes in the course of their duty or otherwise abuse their power resulting in convictions, that nobody has ever done anything. There haven't been lookbacks, generally speaking, with a, a handful of exceptions, there aren't lookbacks, and you know, uh, Karen can talk a little bit more about the work of the Midwest Innocence Project. And this is, you know, I mentioned um, women earlier as a group that that are routinely victimized by official misconduct. But that that the Midwest Innocence Project has also done some really fabulous work in coalition with others to address the misconduct of a police officer who was convicted of a crime, but who was notoriously sexually abusing. Um, black women in the course of his official duties and resulting in in various convictions that, you know, obviously should not be, should not remain valid. They never should have occurred, but they should certainly not occur now after um, his guilt has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's uh, excellent points to, to segue into uh, another kind of methodology question. Ms. Thompson, the guide notes that even after discovery of evidentiary errors, there are going to be barriers to, to, to success um, post-conviction in that process. And they the guide mentions this notion of a holistic review, which is something that I hadn't come across except in other disciplines and other areas, not necessarily in the law. Could you tell us what that means and why that's significant and, and how it would play out going forward? Yeah. Um, a holistic review is actually a really simple idea, which basically says that when a judge uh, is considering a case, uh, they, in, particularly in the post-conviction space, that they're considering the laws, the, the law, the facts, but also the surrounding circumstances in a case. And, and, and when considering all of those factors together, that they might come to a conclusion that a conviction was in fact unjust. And so what that means it's it's a very important thing, and I don't want to get too in the weeds and too legally on on some of these conversations. But I think part of the problem is that all of this stuff is very much behind the courtroom door, and we don't see um, exactly how it's impacting people. And this is one of the ways that it it is unseen, in the sense that we we say we have to follow the law, we have to follow the structure, but we ignore how sometimes the law and the structure make it easier for all of these other flagrant kind of violations of justice get um, excluded from the conversation. So if you do, say, have uh, some sort of DNA testing, right, and that DNA testing is from a sample 
and it comes back and it 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 maybe hits to the defendant, some would say, okay, we're done. We've done that correctly. It's over. But when you're thinking about all of the factors, what you're going to think about is how was that sample collected? Was it collected in a way that actually comports with Fourth Amendment principles about seizures and searches? Who was the person who collected it? Is there a reason why that sample was where it was? Is it, say, for instance, was the criminal defendant in the house because they were related to or had a real reason for uh, being present where the sample was collected, right? There, there are many things that um, paint a full picture. And for so long, we have used the law, which we should use, or advocates, but we've used it in a way that was narrow and didn't actually create enough space to have the full-throated conversation about what it is that we're seeing. And so um, we've seen this in place in, in Massachusetts. We've seen some convictions overturned when that full picture was brought in, that is some of the, the activities of various actors. Um, we've, Like I said, we've seen it in Massachusetts, but I think another really great example of it has been the case, the Adnan Syed case out of Maryland, where we saw issue after issue after issue come up in post-conviction litigation. And when taken together, that brought um, skepticism from the DA there, who then went on to vacate that conviction. So that is actually one of the easier ways to bring this question of equity and parity back into the system. Because when you stop pretending that everything is just fair, right, that somehow we are we are operating from a, a place of, of equity. And when you understand that equity is a little bit of a, a stretch, <laughs> um, even from the very beginning roots of a case, when you start to uh, factor in some of the discrepancies, uh, racial discrepancies, policing discrepancies, all of these other questions that feed into uh, the bigger problems, when you look at them all at the beginning, and then when you factor them in, sadly, further along in the post-conviction process, we're, we're starting to see some changes and recognition of how those things are hurting in very distinct ways, um, the defendants who whose cases haven't been given that full kind of view. That's an excellent, also another great way to segue into a related uh, point. Miss um, Newworth, for our, our listeners, mm -hmm. there is a major statute that uh, affects all of the review. It, it is called, uh, often referred to as EDPA, which stands for the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty uh, Act. And how might this uh, new understanding, which which um, uh, which Ms. Thompson uh, did an excellent job of explaining, how might that play out in the EDPA context in terms of either the reforms that 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 uh, that you would be advocating for, or uh, perhaps uh, using the language of the statute itself uh, to support something that is more holistic in an approach? Well, I would just I wanted to um, kind of piggyback on something that. Um, Karen was just talking about, um, and the important, maybe it's a related answer to the question you're asking, which is, you know, the holistic review of the evidence standard is, or, or, or a holistic review of evidence is really important too in, in official misconduct cases, because one of the things that we know about official misconduct is that it involves lying and hiding evidence by those who are generally given a presumption of believability. And so, for example, in the cases that Karen was mentioning, 
you know, one thing, you know, one piece of evidence is unlikely to prove innocence because those engaged in official misconduct to get the conviction aren't going to leave that, you know, smoking gun available. And so you have to start looking at what's both present and not present and what makes sense and what seems credible and what doesn't. And so that requires looking at the totality of the evidence. And when you just look at one thing, like, oh, well, the DNA or the, you know, X forensic testing was inconclusive or not exculpatory, there may be good reasons for that. Um, and those reasons could be official misconduct. And so that should not be where the um, examination stops. Let's turn it back to a final clip we have from Professor Beattie discussing what avenues for future research she sees available on the horizon and how she sees the guide impacting such scholarship. In closing, I'll review a few additional areas that the guide covers. First, faulty forensic evidence used at trial. The guide gathers information on change science writs, which are also known as junk science writs, where a legal claim can be brought if faulty forensic evidence was used against a defendant at trial. This is a creative post-conviction path for addressing most notoriously bogus disciplines like bite mark evidence, but also addressing other areas of science where the science has simply changed. We now know more than we did at the time of trial. Change science writs provide an avenue for courts to look at that evidence today and make a substantive decision on the evidence itself. Second, the guide suggests legal claims in federal court under EDPA, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. EDPA added, uh, quote, evidence as a whole, end quote, standard to the controlling statutes back in 1996. And now we're starting to see federal courts, most notably in the Fourth and Sixth Circuits, interpreting this standard seriously. By looking at the evidence as a whole, the court may consider evidence excluded at trial or submitted in prior unsuccessful post-conviction proceedings and petitions, as well as the newly discovered evidence. Currently, most courts only look at the evidence that's in front of them right now, not the prior petition about a mistaken eyewitness, not the evidence of the alternative suspect excluded at trial. So this standard can allow for considering all of it together. This is in line with what we've seen in some state courts, where a holistic review of the evidence standard empowers a judge to consider all the claims and all the evidence together. This can include race and gender bias, uh, acknowledging how individual factors in a case influence each other, and moving beyond just the individual claim and dismissing the claim as harmless error. Future scholarship in this area can focus on how judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys, uh, and of course, innocence litigators can be crucial players in writing miscarriages of justice through these unique post-conviction avenues. That brings us to the end of our time today. We wanna to thank our guests for a really terrific discussion of this important new guide that will be unveiled uh, at our upcoming symposium. Karen Newark, founder and principal of Newark Law. Karen Thompson, civil rights attorney with ACLU New Jersey, and our colleague, Valina Beattie, professor of law and deputy director of the Academy for Justice at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Thanks also to our co-host and our producer, Amina Ketchum-Kamel. 
This product is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.